Hey there, I'm Caitlin Pedersen, back with another new episode of Inside Intercom. This week, we're taking a look at how customer support can drive business growth with a brand that knows this better than most, HubSpot. As the director of customer support here at Intercom, I was interested in understanding how HubSpot creates support experiences so great that it encourages word of mouth referrals and how support teams can turn customers into promoters and build a framework to do this again and again with every single support interaction. There's really no better person to talk to on this topic than HubSpot's general manager for their service hub, Mike Redboard. Mike's really seen it all at HubSpot. He was there when the support team was just 20 people in a single office offering just phone support, and under his leadership grew to more than 200 people offering a global multi-channel support. We spoke about why customer service is an untapped growth opportunity, how businesses can embrace automation without losing customer centricity, and which metrics matter along the way. If you enjoy our talk, be sure to subscribe to your podcast player of choice and check out our other interviews. So let's get into the conversation. Michael, welcome to the show. It's great to have you in Dublin. So what brings you over here and what have you and your team been up to recently? Yeah, thanks, Caitlin. So I'm actually here to talk at the next web over in Amsterdam later in the week. But I'm pretty excited to be here with you guys today with Intercom. And then uh, at HubSpot, we're working on a bunch of stuff. And uh, this week is really just a kind of a check-in for me. I think we're almost halfway through the year. and We're trying to make sure we're going at the right pace and delivering for our customers. So it's been a cool week. I'm really excited for the next web in a couple of days. Sounds great. So you're the general manager for HubSpot's Service Hub. Uh, Could you give me a bit of background on why HubSpot built Service Hub in the first place and the philosophy behind it? Sure. So I think that most people listening probably think of HubSpot as like this inbound marketing company. We, We coined the term way back in 2006 when we founded the company. And I think a lot of our story, historically speaking, has really been around marketing, right? And we really popularized content marketing and how to generate traffic and leads and turn that into customers and all that. And that was really the beginning of our story. And then a few years back, we started building a CRM, which has done really well in the market. And once you start kind of moving from building marketing software just for marketers and kind of the very tip of the spear, right, in your go-to-market, and you begin getting a CRM and more salespeople involved, all of a sudden, you realize, man, there's a lot more that we could be doing for our customers, and they're actually starting to demand it from us. And so it was kind of a combination of just continued growth and customer demand. We said, oh, we could build a service component in here, and now we have a marketing hub, a sales hub, and a service hub. And those three together really comprise the entirety of the front office for the SMB. And we're pretty happy with the way that it's been going. And I think our customers have enjoyed us kind of being able to offer them more across their, the entirety of the customer experience. That's great. Makes a ton of sense. So what's interesting to me about Service Hub is that it seems to be less about, say, ticket deflection or resolution and more about using customer service as an untapped revenue uh, or growth opportunity. So could you explain why you think customer service is an effective model for growth? Totally. So so when we started HubSpot, we had this, uh, this metaphor um, of like a funnel, right? And I think everybody in marketing and sales and probably even customer service uses the concept of a funnel. You know, you bring folks in at the top and they have certain rates as they move through some process. So you bring folks into your website, you have a conversion rate. You bring folks into, you know, support, they have a, they have a rate at which they, you know, maybe close their case the first time or open a case a second time or something. There's a funnel concept. That, that concept was really, really powerful for us, but we're sort of moving away from that kind of concept and toward what we call like the flywheel, which is sort of a concept that involves 
more feeding back energy into the system as opposed to a lossy kind of system, a funnel where you sort of diminish your rates of success as you go on. We're really thinking about it as a way to feed energy back into the system. And so what we're seeing with Service Hub then is that it's really a way for folks to take their customers and turn them into their best marketers. It kind of flips with where we came from, which is nice just from a, you know, kind of company genetics perspective and messaging. But I think more importantly, it also it also happens to be real and true. And in fact, if you can make your customers really kind of rapidly happy, they do turn into your best marketers. And so the aim of this product is really to enable that kind of virtuous cycle, enable their customers to be your best marketers. And so far, we're seeing that for small, me small medium-sized businesses, that's actually really, really powerful to help them compete with, you know, the bigger players in their space. Sure. I think that makes a, a lot of sense. And there's so much out in the market about this. And, you know, we talk about customer delight and net promoter. And so really interesting to get HubSpot's uh, swing on all that. So if customer can be, uh, excuse me, if customer support can be an efficient driver for revenue, do you think that sales and support should actually sit under the same umbrella, you know, from an organizational standpoint. I've seen other companies kind of take the success approach and package these all together. Would love to get your thoughts and HubSpot's thoughts on how to put this all together. Yeah, it's super interesting because you see all sorts of different models and org charts. And actually, I would include a third thing, cultures out in the world, right? And I think that the culture is actually the most important thing. And so if you're a company that can be really customer-centric and you can actually have your entire executive team talking to customers, understanding the voice of the customer, and in touch, and there's a lot of ways to do that, but just in touch with the customer, the other things actually matter less, right? And so I think, you know, some folks will organize support in like a product kind of function, and then they'll have, you know, CSM over in like a sales function because they view it as a, you know, cost of revenue and all that. And that's kind of true from an accounting standpoint. You could do it that way. You could also group support and uh, success together under one person. That's actually my preference because I think the functions are so intertwined that you really need a very, very tight handshake between the support, kind of the reactive function and the success, the proactive function. And then the sales function, really depending on the kind of company, you know, that could even sit with it. If mm -hmm. it's a really relationship-based where, you know, the salesperson's intimately involved in the kind of customer lifecycle and customer experience, or it could sit a little farther away if your sales are more transactional. So there's a lot of ways to organize the org chart. I'm a fan of putting support and success together first as kind of a first-order principle. But the thing that I've seen actually matter the most is the customer centricity and, like, how well does your executive team speak customer? And if they really, really are great at that, then a lot of it matters less because the whole organization becomes really customer-centric. Speak customer. I love that. I've not heard it articulated that way, and I think that makes a ton of sense. So, yeah, I think, you know, we're continuing to explore, you know, how you line these teams up and what uh, effective um, customer experience looks like as you kind of move the customer experience across those different teams. So, you know, as I think about this, a big challenge for a lot of support leaders today is this concept that customer service is a cost center. So, you know, I felt this, um, and I think even at customer-centric companies like Intercom and HubSpot, there's always this pressure to, you know, maybe not keep costs down, but to be responsible with how you're scaling your customer support experience. So, how do you guys think about communicating the ROI of customer support? I think we're all bought into this customer centricity. We've come to pride ourselves on it. But how do you think about, you know, talking about the metrics around that and demonstrating that it's it's worth the investment that it takes? Yeah, this is a really tricky conversation because it works differently for different companies, different types of customers. So take uh, HubSpot or maybe Intercom even, for example, like, you know, relatively well-funded, kind of relatively happy history when it comes to financing and stuff like that. And as such, relatively like rich companies, to put it that way, right? And you get less pressure then in certain ways, especially as, as you're growing and as you're younger because everything's going really, really well. 
But when things start going west well and your CFO starts looking for places to cut, they typically will go to support first, right? And not to sales because sales is kind of the growth engine. But if things continue going poorly, then they'll go to sales and the pressure will come for everybody. So I view it as like everybody's subject to the same pressure, sales, marketing, service, support, whatever. It's just that support tends to be the first one to get cut. And what that tells me is that the companies that are kind of behaving like that, they're just fundamentally misunderstanding where their growth comes from. And they believe that, oh, salespeople, that's what defines our growth because they produce quota every month or every quarter or every year. And in a certain way, on a spreadsheet, that's true. But again, it's a fundamental misunderstanding because where your actual success is coming from, like the engine that drives your business is from your customers. And so when you think about it, you sort of flip the script a little bit. Think about it that way. And then you start to break down the customer experience in terms of what's important, right? And you map out their experiences and you do, you know, journey mapping or empathy sessions and you understand what customers value. They're going to value your product probably first, the thing you actually sell, the noun, right? But then they're going to value, I think, the verb of the experience. And that experience is likely marked by kind of key support and human interactions along the way. And so I think that like often support gets this bad rap of cost pressure, especially when things get tight. But if you really sit back and think critically and you view maybe the cost cutting as just a near term kind of thing and in the long run, things are going to get better, right? And you're optimistic about the state of the business, then I would say you probably shouldn't cut support to the bone when things get rough, right? You should spread those kind of cuts more evenly and try to then invest in your customers so you can come out of that downturn a little bit better. And support in its current state often is just the one that kind of negotiates the worst, (laughs) gets the short end of the stick. (laughs) And because it's kind of the, it's the long-term play, it gets cut the most in the near term. And that's really kind of disappointing, I think, for me to see because I feel for the people, but I also feel for the customers that have to deal with sort of the result of that action. Sure. So thinking about how, you know, we're using those costs in the right way, I guess this, my mind kind of turns to this discussion around automation, right? Because so often when we think about investing in a support team, sometimes we just automatically jump to this. Uh, that means headcount, right? Higher, higher, higher. But I think something I'm thinking about, and I know many others are, you know, where else can you be investing outside of headcount to augment what your headcount does, you know, to maintain that customer centricity? So um, I'd love to talk about automation at a scale-up stage. So both Intercom and HubSpot have recently built products to help businesses scale their customer support beyond one-to-one conversations. So whether that's through self-service content or chatbots, which I know everyone has an opinion on these days, I would love to get your thoughts on how businesses can embrace automation but remain customer-centric at the same time. For sure. I think that the this debate is not actually a new one, right? So when the internet started, probably shortly thereafter, somebody took like what was formerly a paper manual, you know, with like turn to page 39Q for how this part works or how to replace whatever, and they put it on the internet. And that was like the world's first example of self-service in action. And at some point that that started this journey. And so to me, what we're looking at today with like chatbots and kind of more interesting kinds of automation, or maybe put better, a faster rate of tool development to do automation. So there's just been this explosion in the number of ways that we can automate and sort of the creativity we can have with them. It's not a new narrative. It's been going on for like forever. And, you know, you have methodologies like knowledge center support and stuff like that that came out of, come out of some of this stuff. So Today, I think it's not fundamentally different, but it puts the kind of importance in a different place. And in particular, I think it puts a lot of weight and a lot of um, power with like the support operations team. So in a normal support organization, 
you know, you've got a couple of different groups and in smaller ones, kind of everybody does everything. But as you start to grow, you end up having, you know, some folks that are focused on, you know, just knowledge management or whatever. And over time, you have a support operations group that's kind of trying to tune the machine. And that team, to me, has gotten a lot more interesting over the last, I don't know, three or four years, even compared to the three or four years prior because of that explosion in automation technology. And so now you have people in there whose like entire job it is, is to work on, you know, the knowledge bot or, you know, kind of like a positive way of moving tickets around and demand around, right? That's really interesting. That job didn't exist three or four years ago. And I think there's going to keep being kind of new types of jobs like that in support operations. And I, I just think that's super, super exciting because it it really just diversifies the skill set that's housed in what we call support. It's not just this old style image of, you know, an agent on a headset. It's now like, it's now the ability to almost growth hack your entire support experience and, and really fundamentally change the fabric of the way customers work. So I get really excited about all this stuff. I think maybe interestingly to listeners, I don't get excited about any one of them in particular. What I get excited about is that trend and the pace at which we're expanding the number of ways that we can kind of play this game. And it's no longer just like take a manual, put it on the internet. And that was really slow. And, you know, companies might do that a couple of times a year. Now companies can roll out new tools, you know, five, six, seven times a year. And they can be really, really agile and creative in the way they build their customer experience. It's great. I couldn't agree more, particularly the point about the growth um, or the emergence of the support operations team. And I think something we've seen um, that I think can be great for so many organizations is the career pathing opportunities that that present itself to your team. And when you're able to maybe focus on bringing less new talent in, but rather bringing in the right talent and then giving them, you know, an exciting career path. And again, it does make sense for everybody, but for the folks that are so inclined. Uh, so yeah, spot on. I think that's, that's great. I think there's actually a, a super cool dynamic here that's also existed for a long time, but again, we're going to see happen faster. And that's sort of the, you know, the, the replacement effect of some of the, I guess, more basic work that we all do in support, right? Where it's like that same question you get over and over, but it also happens to be the most common question because that's just how the math works. That's how like things things go. The more we can effectively replace that with automation, bots, whatever it is that comes in the future, I just think that the, the career pathing is a really big deal, but also just like the level of work and the intellectual interest of the work that we do will just go up. And so I think people have talked about this story for a long time that, oh, over time, like, you know, certain things will get replaced and, and the support rep will be able to elevate their work. I think it's actually happening a lot faster nowadays than it was a few years ago because of the explosion in tech. And it's really kind of pushing the rep upwards. And that's forcing companies to do things that maybe they didn't do before, hire different types of folks, pay them more. Right. Build career paths that are really actually sustainable, build like sustainable development that gives people, you know, long term careers and support. None of that really existed 10 years ago. And I think it's just like really hastening uh, the pace of those kind of movements from companies in a response to what's going on with technology. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. 
I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. Moving on, uh, in 2017, you wrote an article in Harvard Business Review that I've been a huge fan of and um, has been hugely helpful for us in thinking about how we kind of take our support experience to the the next stage, so to speak. So in this article, you sort of talk about these five phases of customer service as a startup grows and what companies should or maybe most importantly, should not be focusing on at each stage. So can you bring this to life for us, these kind of different stages and, you know, what you think are kind of the the key ones for hypergrowth businesses to be focusing on? For sure. So that article was like a labor of love. I don't know how many words it was, but it's long, so we're not going to do the whole thing. <laughs> uh, but it was really just built off of my experiences in terms of scaling HubSpot support. And the observations here are not super complicated. Some of the do's and don'ts are a little more directive, but the observations go like this. At the beginning, when you're, you know, two founders and a developer and you've got an idea and you're trying to make stuff go, you know, your entire company is your support team, right? And that is just a necessity because you don't have money to hire a support person. And why would you anyway? You'd probably hire another engineer first. So everybody does support and you end up very, very close to the customer. Small companies tend to be very, very in touch with their customers. It's part of why they win, part of why they can compete against bigger companies who aren't, who've, you know, hired giant teams and can't do a good job of the customer experience. So that's at the beginning. And then at the end, as you kind of scale up, you have, you know, some of the topics we were talking about earlier come into play. How do we get the entire executive team to talk to customers? How does the CFO understand, you know, and speak customer, right? And so that's a spectrum. Now, at the beginning, everybody's close to the customer. And as you go from startup to scale up, people kind of pull away. Their jobs become more specialized. It's a very natural thing. So what I talk about in that article and some of the do's and don'ts are how to balance that natural tension and stay close to the customer and tweak your operation in ways and kind of, I think, critical ways to make that happen. So for instance, you know, the more that you can like think about support and success as, you know, kind of siblings, right? And keep them together and make the customer experience contiguous across the two, the better it is for your company, the closer you stay to the customer, right? The more you can have your executive team engage in voice of the customer exercises and, you know, use tools like NPS or whatever, that also helps to do this kind of stuff. So I view small companies as just like a very, very special time for the customer, right? And then the key is as you grow, don't lose it. And there's all sorts of things you can do along the way. Yeah, that makes sense. And you mentioned NPS, which I think, you know, that's that's a whole separate conversation, but sometimes, you know, does that belong in support and success or is that more of a, a product or marketing function? But I guess, you know, as you're kind of moving through these different stages, the metrics that you need to be paying attention to and tracking at each stage change as well. Any, I guess, any interesting lessons learned along the way as you guys were you know, we've talked about this before, tracking and looking at different numbers, like any kind of interesting uh, lessons learned along the way or points to call out? Yeah, I suppose there are two inflection points, like two key moments, if you will, in the growth of a company that I think are interesting for 
for this discussion. So the first is when you're kind of that primordial ooze of a startup and everything's like, you know, super customary, right? And you don't, don't have that many metrics. What tends to then happen is you do grow, things do go well, and you start hiring people to do certain functions. One of the first functions they tend to hire is somebody to own the customer, own support, right? But even then, they probably don't have a ton of metrics. It's just like get the queue under control and CEO knows if customers are roughly equally happy to the way they were before or more or less. And so that becomes a barometer. And so in the beginning, there's very few metrics. At some point, though, you do get to the point where you need to start wrapping some metrics around like support. And that typically is really simple stuff because at this stage, companies aren't super complicated. So it's like response time and maybe quality of resolution, like a CSAT score or something like that. Simple stuff. And so the first thing that companies generally kind of create when they go to create metrics then around customer stuff has to do with support and it has to do with speed and quality resolution. So if we think of that as a baseline and go from there, a couple of things happen. The first is that those metrics are super operationally focused and not very outcome focused, right? And so as you start building like customer success teams or implementation teams or teams that kind of, you know, are more focused on customer outcomes as opposed to just kind of getting through a case, you need a different set of metrics. And so the first, I think, key pivot point for a company is going from just being reactive and measuring the reactive stuff in a very transactional way to really measuring proactive work and in fact being proactive, right? In the way that you work with customers through different functions and stuff like that. That tends to have metrics that are maybe closer tied to the product, things like usage, adoption, usage retention, so not, not dollar retention, but how long people actually keep using the product. That tends to have things like upgrade numbers, downgrade numbers, uh, you know, customer retention or renewal rates, right? And you start to get into this world where you're marrying reactive and proactive at kind of the mid-stage of a company. Big fan of that. The second then pivot point as things go on, because that can carry on for a while, and that's actually a pretty sustainable model for quite some time as you scale up. The next kind of key moment after that in a company's journey here is to get to the point where multiple functions start to really touch the customer in new ways. So maybe you then had to build a big renewal organization or your product line got big enough that your sales reps are selling back into the base more. There's some fundamental change in the business process. And at this stage, the customer success team, inclusive of support, it can't just keep measuring only its own stuff. You need to measure the whole thing in some other way. So I'm kind of a big fan here of measuring, you know, total lifetime value and thinking about churn and upgrade and the net retention of that as kind of a shared metric. And you tend to then spread responsibility for that across the business. And that's a really nice way to drive customer centricity really, really broadly across the organization. So like the, when I think about it, you have those two points, right? You have the point where you just kind of go from reactive to proactive and change your measurements there. And then you have the point where you go from just customers being owned by just the customer team to really the customer being owned by everybody. And that fundamentally changes the game and how you measure. Makes a lot of sense. I think one that's also interesting at the moment that I've yet to really kind of scratch beyond the surface, but is customer effort, right? And that can inform onboarding. And then that takes us back to the product team. So yeah, I think this cross-functional shared metrics space is, is not only really smart, but takes us back to a point you made earlier, which is like, how do you maintain that sense of customer focus across all teams, you know? So I guess my last question for you here, Mike, is thinking about inertia. So as a company grows and grows, it's easy for inertia to creep in, particularly for customer support leaders, you know, again, where you're seeing this fast growth, like you've seen at HubSpot and like here at Intercom. So with such a big team and many different organizational layers, you get further and further removed from what's really important, which is your customers. So how does HubSpot keep check with the pulse of the customer on a regular basis? You talked earlier again about some of the different strategies that the, the C-level or the executive team can use. Would love to hear some of those. Um, that you think uh, ensure that that never gets lost. For sure. So 
maybe if I can like almost rephrase the question a little yeah. bit, right? It's like, how, as you scale, do you do things that keep you in touch with the customer on a one-to-one -one basis? And so to even then rephrase it one more time, how, when you scale, do you do things that don't scale? Right. And when you're really small, like we were talking about before, and you're kind of just a beginning startup, you do a lot of stuff that doesn't scale. And, you know, you have your CEO on the phone with a customer on like a Saturday night. Right. And so the answer that we've happened upon, I don't know if this is the right one, but it's the one that's working for us at HubSpot, is get your leadership team to do stuff that doesn't scale. So, for instance, we've started a, what we call a customer first staff meeting. Uh, and I think we do it every month and we every two weeks we meet as a whole executive team. One of those is the customer first staff meeting. We do it every four weeks and we have a customer and we talk to them. And like in some ways that that's kind of like outrageous that we're, we're handling kind of support requests and stuff like that as a team there. But in other ways, I don't know how else you would get that whole executive organization involved with the customer, right? And so we make sure to do that call. We make sure to have lots of verbatims from our NPS. We make sure to bring in those customers. We do panels. We'll have like, you know, a big Zoom meeting with, with 10 customers on it where we're talking about like one topic, whether it's pricing or the way a new product works or whatever. And so we haven't, I think, identified a silver bullet in terms of like, here's the scalable, super slick solution to making this happen. What we've done is we've placed the human beings who make decisions, the executive team, in touch with the human beings that are affected by those decisions, which is the customer. We've cut out the middleman, which is the organization. And so we just try to do things that don't scale. And we don't have guilt around it, I suppose, which is healthy. Uh, and that's kept us pretty close to the customer. We haven't always done it, by the way. There were periods of time we didn't do this. And I think in those times, we really felt that distance and we felt the center you know, of our energy really moving more inwardly to, oh, how do we tweak the way this team works, the way that process works, or look at this P&L, as opposed to outwardly to the way that customer experience happened, the way that ticket was resolved, the way that new product onboarding went. So the more we can do stuff that doesn't scale and stay in touch with the customer, I think the better we grow. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. And hopefully sharing this can help companies out there not have to maybe react to that. You know, they can sort of build some of that stuff into their process uh, as they grow. But I'd say that that most do kind of reach that point where it's like, oh, no, we forgot about this and we got to we got to get back there. So because you're focusing on the service products now, but you have these deep, amazing roots at um, HubSpot, you know, talking to customers and scaling and growing that support team. Is there any kind of technology or changes out there in the marketplace when it comes to service products that you're particularly excited about or that you think people should be keeping an eye on? Yeah. So I mentioned before, I'm really excited about the pace of innovation in terms of automation, our ability to bring kind of self-service to customers. I think it's been around for a long time. I think the pace of innovation is way up and to the right right now. And I get really excited about, about that. That's number one. Number two is I think that with that technology, the kind of the fabric of the customer experience, the, the topology of that fabric has gotten more complicated. Put differently, it's harder to understand when you get on the phone with the customer, the totality of their prior experiences, because now you're spread across a bunch of systems, a bunch of channels that are new and sophisticated, but you know maybe don't tie together with your old phone system or whatever. And so the tech stack gets more complicated, the topology of the experience gets more complicated, and as a result, understanding the entirety of that customer journey becomes harder, right? And especially in a, in a kind of quick way when you've got, you know, four seconds before you get on the phone with a customer to understand who you're talking to. So I'm a big fan of softwares that solve that problem, right? Uh, customer data platforms giving you like a 360 view of the customer, a CRM that ties all of those kind of things together. I think those are kind of just like table stakes nowadays for a company that's trying to leverage everything we're talking about and trying to really serve their customer the right way. 
Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been great having you on the podcast, and uh, we look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more interviews, go to intercom.com slash blog or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. This is Inside Intercom.